Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, the Adweek podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, and in the end, everything's an ad. I'm not David Greiner. I am Josh Rios, the video slash editor here at Adweek, and I'm hosting this week. And we're going to talk about a bunch of topics, but I think we're going to really talk about this week, the big news. So joining me on the cast this week is Sarah Jurdy, our digital media reporter. Nice to see you, Sarah. Good to see you, Josh. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. So... Let's get down to it. So Apple this week had a crazy but not really big announcement this week. It was Mm -hmm. kind of sort of like we know that there's not new technology going on. They announced their iPhone like sometime this week. So there's nothing really big. But there's been rumors for a long time of the new streaming service and also what they're going to do with their content. Mm -hmm. Everyone has content. Everyone does a lot of things. So it's sort of like the announcement came by. So in this announcement, what did we get in this announcement? Well, I mean, it was really splashy. We had a lot of celebrities come on stage from Steven Spielberg to Oprah, Reese Witherspoon. I mean, we could go down the list of everyone who was on stage. So really, they did a great job of marketing this new TV streaming service. What they didn't do a great job of doing is giving people actual information that they wanted. Um, Namely, there was no discussion about how much this is going to cost. We know um, some of the original programming that they're going to have on the service, Reese Witherspoon, and Jennifer Aniston have this fun little show about um, morning news and kind of taking you behind the scenes. And um, we're going to see a lot of different programming that Apple has produced and created. Um, We just don't know how much it's going to cost. Uh, Of course, also at this event, they announced um, a few different services, including the credit card that they're going to be offering, um, a new gaming subscription that they're going to be offering, and um, a new Apple News Plus offering, which is going to be packaging uh, over 300 magazines and some newspapers together. Um, So it was a really splashy event, lots of bells and whistles, not a whole lot of real information that was new. Okay, so let's let's get to the Apple News. Let's mm-hmm. let's get to the Apple News. Let's do it. Do you have a magazine subscription or like do you have any subscriptions? I think because you're done, you have to have these subscriptions. <laughs> I, I do, like, yeah. And I'm a print loyalist. I love reading stuff in print, so I do yeah. have a few magazine subscriptions. Yes. Okay, I don't. Right. Like it's just one of those things. But like I try. Like I was like, oh, maybe I'll get into like GQ. Maybe I'll get a subscription to GQ. Yeah. And then I'm just like, I don't want a subscription to GQ. It's just going to end up being a pile in my apartment, and then mm-hmm. eventually going to have to throw them all away and feel bad about that. Or I'm just going to get into scrapbooking a bunch of these articles Mm -hmm. into a notebook, which I'll eventually lose as well. Mm -hmm. But um, some of the the magazines that are involved are like The New Yorker, People, GQ, a lot of Condé stuff. And then there are three – two big-time papers here in the U.S. that we're bringing up. Yeah. 
We've got the LA Times participating in the Wall Street Journal from the news side of things. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, we've got all the big magazine publishers who've signed on, Hearst, Condé, and Meredith. And I think it's important to note, too, that they were already involved with Texture. Um, they were owners of Texture, which was the magazine platform that they created for the iPad that Apple then purchased last year. So um, this new Apple News Plus offering is built on that Texture, and they already had contracts, the magazines themselves, to continue working with Apple to produce content. But they do have new folks coming on at the platform, including, as you mentioned, those newspapers, as well as uh, digital verticals like The Cut and The Skim, um, Extra Crunch from TechCrunch. So a few new partners working from that end as well. A lot of the other papers in America, the big papers, sort of like the Washington Post mm-hmm. and um, – um, The New York Times both said that they wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. participate. Yeah. But they've had great years in the last – couple years of journalism they had like their subscription rates are like through the roof Mm -hmm. and it's sort of just like why do you want to be on apple news if you could just build your own thing like it's sort of just like yeah where does that actually leave it just like do you need this right well i think outside of the contractual obligations that i talked about i think these newspapers are going into this partnership thinking that they're going to draw new readers a people magazine reader might not necessarily be a wall street journal reader under normal circumstances but perhaps they're going to find their way to the journal on this new platform um, i think ideally these partners are seeing apple news plus as a way to um expand their reach, but hopefully driving new subscribers to their own services. Um, The argument there being that they're not going to be as loyal of a reader or they're not going to get the same sort of type of community that they would find as a subscriber to the journal itself rather than the content that you're going to see on Apple News+. Plus. I am interested to see where that actually turns out because I don't know how much data Apple is going to be giving these publishers. Um, it's kind of a gray area. I, yeah, I kind of feel like the data is like the most important part to like any yeah, organization. Like right. I, over like the years that I've been working in media, sort of just like the data is kind of key. And since Apple's doing their giant like privacy, like we're a private thing. We keep your all your information itself. We don't know anything. There's not going to be a giant text leak anywhere or anything or your password left in a page file left on an old website. Facebook. And it's just one of those things where it's just like they're very much on privacy. So I don't know if these papers are going to get that data back. Yeah. They're not going to get the demographics. They're not going to get emails, which are sort of like for newsletters and stuff like that. So I don't think that it's just not angling correctly. Like there's something missing. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a great point. I mean, this we're trying to figure out media as an industry at large is trying to figure out where our audience is, what they want to read. And the big question mark coming out of this partnership is what is Apple actually going to be telling them about this audience? You know, as we've talked about before, Apple gets a 50, 50 uh, share of the revenue that comes in from the service. Wait, we didn't talk. Oh, they get 50 half. They Yeah. Half. Right. But so half of is a pool then that the publishers kind of compete for. So depending on where users spend their time. So, for example, you're People Magazine and I'm The Journal. I'm a real huge fan of People, if you didn't know. I really <laughs> I love their purple. Great content. Great, great content. content. Um, so if folks are spending more time on People, you're going to get a bigger chunk of the pie. So they have to report that data to the publishers just in, in time spent. Uh, beyond that, I'm not, you know, I'm not really sure what they're getting out of it. Data-wise. Yeah, I. that's like another – it's very much like about a mystery and it's sort of just – if I was a paper, any like not even like a paper, I was like a magazine mm-hmm. and my – basically everyone's unionizing at this point. Like 
I think, today. Um, I think Pitchfork and The New Yorker just unionized today. And it's one of those things that just, like, that's becoming a factor in it as well. And it's sort of just, like, Apple takes a giant cut, which is not new for Apple or, like, anybody who has, like, a platform for, like, a lot of their apps. Like, Hulu, for example, takes 30% for every subscription that goes through. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Netflix actually took off that you can't subscribe to Netflix on the app so that they don't take a 30% cut. Mm -hmm. So it's just a lot of, like, being brought down by little tiny cuts. But I think that the 50% is the part that's bothering the most of just, like, it's half. It's not like the usual like 20 from like a PayPal or anything else or like any other subscription service. It's half. Yeah. And, and already with like a moderately like kind of messed up media system and just like everyone's racing for dollars is sort of just like I feel like the papers are being taken advantage of. Mm. Well, as content creators ourselves, I mean, we know how expensive it is to create content. I yeah. mean, it's not a cheap process. But I think they're really sort of uh, – see at the light at the end of the tunnel being this huge reach that Apple has. I mean, think of all the devices that folks are using. and There, there are a ton of iPhones and yeah. iPads and like... Over a billion users throughout yeah. the world. So, I mean, that's an incredible reach. And if, if publishers can tap into that, you know, I think they want to take advantage of it. But it, the question comes down to is, you know, what is in it for them? Is that going to drive new subscribers? Yeah. And so we'll have to see. We'll have to see if that matters. Okay. So let's pivot back onto the content. Yeah. So Apple is creating their own content. They already had their own content with Carpool Karaoke. And I think there was like another show that they had that completely fell off the radar. But Carpool mm-hmm. Karaoke is the big one because people like people singing and celebrities singing. Mm-hmm. But um, so they came out with, I think Steven Spielberg is bringing back Amazing Stories, which was an anthology series that he had in like the early like 90s. I think I it think. was like the mid 80s. Mid 80s. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what time it is. Um, <laughs> but it's one of those, it's an anthology shows which are very hot right now. Yeah. Anthology shows are very hot. Um, Oprah is bringing her book club and mm-hmm. something else to this. Yeah, she has a couple of new docuseries that she's bringing back as well as her book club. Um, one of those series is talking about sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. I think you're going to see a lot of really high caliber talent on these programming and it's going to be pretty pretty well thought out programming. Um, I think the question then becomes, is that enough to bring in new subscribers? I mean, I think about all the subscriptions that I have and all the content that I already have to watch. Sarah, how many yes. subscriptions do you have? Uh, are we talking video streaming services? Yes. Okay. We're, we're going we're, to, let's just Let keep it through. to video services real quick. All right, I'm going to say... I'm counting. Yeah. Uh, you want me to say them out loud? Yeah. Okay, Hulu. Okay. HBO. Okay. Netflix. Showtime. Um, I'm trying to think of any others. I think that's what I've got. Wow, I would, I would actually... This is actually... A four is a pretty decent number. So let's just say Hulu is around like... Do you have... Wait, Hulu commercials or Hulu without commercials? Hulu without commercials. Okay, smart. Okay, so Hulu <laughs> without commercials is around like 14 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... I'm not, hold on. Let me bring out a calculator real quick. You got it. HBO is 15. Okay, so that's 14 for Hulu. Let's just say 15 for HBO. Mm-hmm. What else did you say? Netflix. Okay, Netflix is like 11 dollars, and then Showtime. Showtime is. Do you have it through Hulu or you just have it separate? I have it separate, but you bring up a good point. I should probably. Okay, so services. I'm just gonna say that's around like 15 bucks. Yeah. All right, so Sarah, per month. On just video subscription service, mm-hmm. you spend around an average of fifty-five dollars. Wow! When you put it like that, it sounds I, like a lot. I know, it? but I think a lot of us, especially like millennials and like a lot of our generation below us, yeah. are especially just being like we don't have cable. Right. We have steady internet, and it's sort of just like 
there are shows on a bunch of content and we've had like Netflix for a bunch of years and it's sort of just like $55 a month is kind of the same amount of money that my parents pay for cable still. Yeah, absolutely. And when we think about our daily routines, I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I love a good program and like going home and getting cozy and binging. Bravo. Exactly. Bravo. (laughs) Um, But adding another service to me, I think this was the year that I realized it was sort of just like, I have too many services. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I have – I okay, let me just put this out here. I don't Yeah, let's f- talk through what you pay for. Oh, no, let's <laughs> talk through it. Okay, so I don't pay for Hulu. I take a friend's Hulu. Nice. I pay for my own Netflix. I do not pay for my own HBO. I also do not pay for my own Showtime. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where it's just like I know that the cost for average, but I pay for like other things. Like I am a wrestling fan. Mm-hmm. I pay for wrestling. Okay. I don't want to – I pay for a lot of these things and just, like, getting content. And then, like, we didn't even talk about, like, Prime being technically free if you're oh, a Prime subscription. Because, yeah, then, I have Prime too. And then you also mm-hmm. have Prime. But it's sort of just, like, Apple getting into content is cool. But I feel like – I personally feel there's too much content. Yeah. But it's fine because everyone's going to find their own niche of content. But it's sort of just, like – I have to go over here for this. I'll, I'll have to get CBS All Access next week because I want to see the Twilight Zone, but um, that's another subscription service. Right. I mean, there's – yeah, when I think about when I go home and try to decide what to watch, that process in itself it takes up to 30 minutes every yeah. night, and that's overwhelming. Yeah. Um, so, I, I yes, I think that what we're feeling, we're not the only ones. I think as more options do come online, people are going to get fatigued by the amount of options that they have. Apple this week announced three new subscription offerings in the, in the streaming, in the news, and in this gaming option. So they added three new ones to the marketplace, um, and I think the question becomes how much are we willing to pay for before we just, you know, walk away from it all? Yeah, I think there was like a report in The Verge in which like Tim Cook said, it's comparable to Netflix, and I'm like – what age of Netflix? Like, yeah. are we talking about seven ninety nine Netflix? Are we talking about the right. current like eleven forty nine and five hundred billion originals that I don't watch? Right, and I think that's why the question about how much this is going to cost is a really huge question and crucial to the success of this this new offering, because it is is it more in line with a an early Netflix or a current HBO? I mean, there's a huge range there. Yeah. Um, and this is also not to mention that the new video offerings that are also going to be coming to the marketplace this year, including Disney's and um, ESPN's is already out there. So people just have a ton of options. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see with this Apple News Plus offering. I mean, they've bundled effectively all of these different publications. It's curious to see if that's going to be a solution to all the, the subscription fatigue. I mean, if we bundle services, if we take – this sounds like cable. Oh, hey, I would like the sports package. Give right, me all right. of these sports. And I thought we were moving away from that. Mm-hmm. Full circle. Media industry is a great time. <laughs> I, I don't – listen, I I like sports. Occasionally mm-hmm. I, I have an antenna and I will probably get like sports and something like that. But I don't want the sports package. Yeah. You know what I want to watch? You want to pick and choose. No, I want the Twilight Zone, which comes out <laughs> on Monday. But I don't want to pay for CBS All Access for one show. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like – it, it's it's very much just so it's just things change and then things go back and it's sort of just like where do we make the stop? Like we love these brands. We love these things that are going across and it's sort of just like do we make it cost effective by putting advertisements in it? Which everyone mostly are just like you got to find new ways to advertise but like mm-hmm. it's hard out here. Yeah. Like it's just like you pay more, no commercials or if you do pay more, you still get more commercials. So it's just like 
it's hard. Yeah. And we should note, this being an ad podcast and all, that there are not going to be any ads on this new uh, video streaming service from Apple. Uh, brand marketers, I hear the cries from here. I, I, I <laughs> like, it's hard because a lot of, like, it, it is one of those things that just, like, where do you step in? Yeah, it's going to be on the consumers to pay for it if yeah. they want to watch it. Like, I, it's crazy. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I just feel, I, I don't get it say this often, but I sometimes get anxiety. Like, it's not anxious, but it's just like, where where am I going to watch this show? Am I going to miss something? Am I going to miss out? Like, mm-hmm. Game of Thrones starts next week. Mm-hmm. Not like next week, but like next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, what if my subscription goes away? What if something happens? And it's sort of just like, do I get left out of like knowing things of just like cultural things? Right. Do you miss out on the conversation? And then it's like, what if I missed that sweet article in GQ? Right. Or that sweet article in Adweek. Yes, adweek.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for joining us. It was good. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to move some panels around and move on to our big story of the week. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. Bye. Hello, and we're back. So we changed up the panel a little bit to talk about our big story of the week, which is Kraft Heinz and 3G, our big story by our writers here at Adweek. Joining me on the cast is Patrick Coffey, our editor-at-large here at Adweek. Hi, Josh. Hi, how's it going? And also joining us is our brand reporter on the beat, who also helped write this, Diana Pearl. Hi. So, I'm going to be very, very honest with you. I read your story twice. It's a great story. Like, kudos to both of you. But I want you to explain the story to me a little bit like I'm five. Like, it's a huge story that involves, it's supposed to work on paper. And it involves 3G, Kraft Heinz, and a lot of decisions that were made. So, Patrick, can you give me, like, the intro of how this deal happened? Uh, So 3G is a Brazilian private equity firm. They had a history of essentially going in, taking control of companies, including uh, Burger King, uh, Tim Hortons, Popeyes. And they also advised on the merger of Anheuser-Busch and uh, InBev that created AB InBev. And their specialty is that they uh, are known for essentially cutting unnecessary costs and making the organizations as efficient as they can be, especially with um, companies that sell products like that where they're kind of their, their sales are not really going up. So they need to slim down in order to compete. And uh, this one, the idea was that they have these two huge, very well-established companies that make similar products, consumer packaged goods, CPG. You know, this is not fresh stuff that you pick up at the deli. You know, this is not in the produce aisle. This is things like Kool-Aid, Jell-O, uh, ketchup, mustard, you know, the staples. that. And both companies are very old. The brands are well-established. Uh, They've been in the aisles of your supermarket for as long as you or your parents and probably your grandparents have been alive. And the idea was that they do what they did with uh, AB InBev. They take these two huge companies, mash them together, um, and then figure out what they can cut in the interest of making them uh, more successful, uh, both relatively and, and the idea being that they can continue to deliver to consumers while also providing bigger returns for investors. And uh, so that happened between 2013 and 2015. Uh, the, the merger officially went through in 2015. And then uh, last month, the company had a write-down that was more than $15 billion. It was about a quarter of its total value. And the stock price has has dropped dramatically since then. So it's been, financially speaking, it was a bit of a disaster. 
and uh, people, our story was about the conclusions that people in the marketing industry have tried to draw from what happened to them. Awesome. And Dan, on the brand side, like these are a lot of brands that like I grew up with and it's sort of like as Patrick said, we're all in every grocery store aisle and everything. And so was there any like a standout brand that you think, oh, this this could be great. This could be something that could get like a little bit of an infusion or is just like what happened here on the brand side? Well, there hasn't been, you know, a ton of infusion happening. And that's one of the main um, criticisms of Kraft Heinz is that, you know, 3G sort of rested on their laurels, so to speak, and thought, you know, these brands were legacy brands. They had huge name recognition. Everyone knew who they were and they could essentially sell themselves. Um, but consumer appetites have really changed a lot. And in these, what ways? Sorry to interrupt. No worries. <laughs> um, you know, people now, they don't, they want to know the ingredients in their food. They want things that are healthy. They don't want things that have, um, you know, fake ingredients or, you know, super processed. You know, more people want to make something with like vegetables and fresh produce and that sort of thing rather than, or like make their own mac and cheese versus like getting it out of a box. Um there's nothing wrong with box mac and cheese. No. <laughs> um, although a lot of consumers, you know, may, may beg to differ. You know, there also is the issue that a lot of these brands, you know, kind of didn't come into the 21st century marketing-wise. You know, some of them have been good about social media. You know, Planters, for one, um, has been smart about it. They have an account for Mr. Peanut. But then other ones have been not as smart and, you know, have really kind of let that part of marketing just sort of sit there. Maxwell House, um, the coffee brand, you know, has posted 10 Instagrams in its account's existence. How long has that account been around? I don't, I don't remember exactly, but like years. Okay, so, that's, that's not flexing on Yeah, anybody. and even that's... if it hadn't been around years, you know, you think Instagram has been a big tool since for at least the past five or six years, yeah. so why haven't they been using it? Kool-Aid went three years total without posting on their Instagram at all. I was like scrolling and saw that there was a like a Kool-Aid picture and it was like a, a rainbow. The colors were a rainbow. So I was like, oh, maybe for pride, but it was actually for when the Supreme Court legalized marriage equality in 2015. And this week you didn't have to scroll too far down to get there. So, you know, that's been also a criticism of 3G is that, you know, maybe they they don't invest in marketing and because of these cost budgeting measures, the zero-based budgeting policy that they, you know, haven't prioritized marketing, um, you know, and there are some companies where you that doesn't seem to be true. Burger King, for one, um, which is owned by 3G, you know, they won um, Adweek's Brand Genius Award. They've had marketing that's been really praised over the past few years. But in Kraft Heinz's case, um, it doesn't seem like they've used marketing to really boost their brands in a in a significant way. Yeah. So, Patrick, there's also the thing of they also cut down on a lot of their agencies, like what a what agencies were lost in the shuffle and like what work kind of like brought them up to this point? Like, Well, they had in 2014 before the merger was even official, they craft uh, cut 10 agencies all at once. And the idea was that they were going to consolidate. And they said at the time, I think, you know, these all, agencies all do great work, but it's just too much. Um, and looking back, it certainly seems like that was part of the overall philosophy of just cutting wherever necessary. And like uh, Diana mentioned, the what's called zero-based budgeting, which is a, a philosophy that's been around since like the, the 70s. I think it was someone at HP that initially developed it. And it's pretty simple. It just says that uh, you have to 
instead of just kind of establishing a standard and saying, okay, this is how our expenses are going to continue, you have to sort of start over at the beginning of every fiscal year and justify every individual expense, which is literally just like going down the list and saying, do we need this? Do we not need this? And the argument that Kraft Heinz CMO Eduardo Luz made to us was that it's about separating what he called core from non-core, the idea being that when you cut all the non-core stuff, you can use that money that you save to then fund the things that really matter. Non-core. Can you go over non-core for me? Because I have an image in my head and I I just want to make sure it's okay. He described it as anything that the consumers don't see. And he made this specific example while we were talking. He was in Miami on a business trip and he was like, you know, they don't care how I got here, whether it was flying first class or flying coach. Um, I also spoke to an anonymous Kraft Heinz employee about zero-based budgeting, and she made it sound like, you know, thing she talked about getting a second monitor for her computer setup. It was something they wouldn't do. And, you know, you think you could get a monitor for $100. It's not like it's expensive, but that's something the consumers don't see. The consumers don't care if you have a second yeah. monitor. Um, so it's really things that the consumers don't see and don't impact them. There's kind of a running joke about not being able to find staplers in the in the offices that run under this philosophy, right? Yeah. But the the issue really is kind of not that this is inherently wrong because businesses, pretty much all businesses waste money, uh, but it's a matter yeah. of finding a balance between uh, cutting things that truly aren't essential and then just kind of going in and saying, okay, we're going to just get rid of 30% of this department because that's, you know, it's yeah. all numbers on a sheet to people. See, in my head, I thought that core would actually be like, no, you cannot take the private jet. You must take the regular plane with everybody else or take a train. Or... Well, it's that too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. He, me- the... he, he mentioned private jets in yeah. particular. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought you guys can't ball as hard as you could, did originally. We have to keep it down. Like, that's, yeah. that's where I thought. I, th- I think the most interesting part about this is that I feel like they thought that they were too big to fail. Like it's sort of like all of these Velveeta cheese, all these craft things, like they didn't move forward as things were going on. And it's sort of like I read in your piece that they didn't allow a lot of younger talent to come in to keep them like culturally appropriate. That was part of the argument. Yeah. The part of it really was that they didn't keep up with movements in culture and and changing consumer tastes, as Diana said. And, and, you know, Eduardo – um, also made the point to us that they're constantly trying to, uh, you know, innovate and and every brand, every marketer obviously has to be on social media. Every, yeah. he, he gave us um, a couple of examples. There was one where they uh, like doing social good and thing. There was one where they provided meals to um, people affected by the storm. Yeah, and, um, the, and the government shutdown. They and were, the government shutdown. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, and then there was just in terms of. Being part of the conversation, so to speak, they launched a product called Mayo Chup, which is exactly what no. it sounds like. It's, no. It's ketchup and mayonnaise in the same bottle. And uh, uh, they did it, promoted it on Twitter, and it was, you know, trending for a bit. And uh, it was sort of – the question there is sort of like, well, is it positive or negative that people are talking about this? And are people going to actually go out and buy it? Did they? Because you could just make it yourself. 
That that's a good question, and we. I mean, you can make it yourself. And t- totally random aside, uh, my mom used to make it for me whenever we would yeah. eat broccoli. For some reason, we, Wait, we would mix Bro- ketchup. Oh. We would mix ketchup and mayonnaise together to flavor our broccoli. Maybe that's a southern thing. I don't really no, know. I yeah. I'm from the no. I yeah. See, yeah. I I still ke- think still feels weird to me now. But yeah. at the time, at the time, it was good, and I really didn't like broccoli. Like so, I'm Puerto know. Rican, and we had like. The mayo ketchup thing is just a thing that you like do. Like we get like just yeah. don't. It's like fry sauce. Yeah, it's yeah. just like yeah, totally, oh, right? it's fun. Yeah. It's just like okay, this is what you do. But to actually make it an actual product on store shelves and be like, oh, this is a. But thing. it is an actual product. Like in it Europe, is. all the places you go to get French fries, they sell you like a mayo. mayo. Yeah, totally, it, it's not. Totally. That's not what it's called. It's like yeah. fry sauce. But yeah, it's a very common condiment. Okay. And I, like Belgian fry I, culture. I just never saw – actually, I don't shop for condiments that often, let's be very honest. But, like, <laughs> I, I never heard of anybody being like, hello, I found my article of mayo chop. Here you go. Here's a picture. It's real. Well, yeah. I mean, one person, uh, well, consultant that I interviewed for the piece told me that he um, – and, and he said he does buy Heinz ketchup. But uh, he was sort of like, when this mayo chop came out, he went into local stores in San Francisco looking for it because he just because he was curious and he wasn't able to yeah. find it. It's also San Francisco. Well, that's part of it, yes. <laughs> but he said he was like, I went to CVS and you yeah. know I went to Walgreens or whatever the standard places you would go, and he was said there was nowhere on the aisle. But meanwhile, I saw Hellman's everywhere. So, yeah. you know, it, part of distribution is part of the issue as well. Yeah. I. What can brands learn from this? Like, I feel like. Everything you've told me, I feel like there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. So can you guys just impart to me a couple of lessons? Because I, it's crazy how this all happened. Like it's just like they didn't update any of their brands. They lost it, not like lost a ton of money, but they lost like the way like the zero based budgeting really got to them. Of just like it made people uneasy. You can't really do as much, and it's sort of just like, is there a bright spot in this entire thing that has happened? Um, I'm not sure if there's one for Kraft Heinz, but I do think the big lesson I take away from this is that, you know, no brand is safe. You know, no brand's name can carry them alone. You need things like marketing or, you know, product innovation, product development. You know, if they had thought and really like watched the trends and maybe made innovations and, and not to say they've made nothing, you know, they took out artificial preservatives from Kraft Mac and Cheese. You know, that is an innovation that's very much in line with what today's consumers want. Um, but I think it really speaks to the fact that, you know, no brand is safe. No brand name can just carry you alone. Um, you ca- really can't rest on your laurels, so to speak, in that. Um, in terms of zero-based budgeting, you know, it sounds like it's not a great system within the company, and it does not sound like it really contributes to positive employee morale. Um, and while that, you know, maybe impacts things like marketing and product innovation a little less, um, at the same time, you know, if you have motivated employees and employees who care about the company, I don't think that that's ever going to hurt your work. It's only going to help it. So, um, you know, sometimes spending money on things that make your employees happy is worth it, like a second monitor or get it like shoot, the source I talked to said they wouldn't pay to get her certified in, you know, what she needed to be certified in to like do her job. And, you know, things like that, like investing in your employees, um, you know, a little less connected to a brand, you know, like the financial collapse. But at the same time, you know, I don't think contributed to a positive corporate environment. Yeah. I think, I mean, a big lesson I draw is that there's no growth in consumer packaged goods, really. I mean, you have all these brands that think about like frozen mac and cheese you know you have amy's which is independent and they're they're a little more expensive there's always going to be that price point difference so the only way that 
CPG can win if you're mass produced is to be cheaper. And that's like, you know, that's not growth. So it's, uh, it's very challenging to make a product like that and to really, when you have so many challengers kind of nipping at your heels, to, to really just develop. And uh, even if you have this name that everybody recognizes, nobody really cares. I mean, just like Diana said, there, there's no such thing as brand loyalty. And like with Popeyes, they, they market it. It's all D&D, deals and discounts, um, which appeals to people, right? But it's like... Nobody thinks of Popeyes as like, oh wow, they're being innovative. Uh, yeah. I I beg to differ. The five dollar <laughs> box innovated my lifestyle very much. I don't well, need a drink. That's what I just said. Five dollar box, right? Deals and discounts. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you know every you know fast food competitor is doing value and deals and discounts. You know what what about that sets them apart? Yeah. But the the positive takeaway though is then you compare it to Burger King, yeah. which is you know, continually winning awards for how great their marketing is. And they're overseen by the same parent company, but they have different management. So they're approaching it. You know, I obviously I'm not on the inside. I don't know the details, but they're approaching it. They're they're approaching it in a different way. And and I I suspect, you know, based on all the people that we talked to for this story, that one big reason is that they have no choice. You know, they have to constantly try to catch up with McDonald's. And, you know, there are people below them as well. Um, not to mention the fact that they have more money to play with because th- their yearly budget is far bigger than that of any other individual Kraft Heinz brand. So I think that Burger King shows that when you're, you know, when you allow for innovation, uh, it will happen, especially if you put the capital required into it. But a lot of people in marketing and in the agency world would like to point to what happened to Kraft Heinz and say. See, pay us more, you know, or give us more work. And um, I just – I don't think that's going to happen because you – these companies, you end up having the investors saying, I need my returns on – my shares. Oh, that, that, oh. Inve- that outweighs investor being that, an investor. I got yeah, it. Yeah, okay. I mean, that, that, especially when you have this class of what they call activist investors that they kind of uh, – it's a complicated story, but they, they find their way onto the boards of these companies and it's almost like they kind of come in via brute force and uh, make their influence known. Um, and they're just not really sympathetic to these arguments. So it's uh, it's a tough time to be trying to promote any of these products. Yeah. So one last question before we finish up for today. Where can Kraft Heinz go? Can they become like – so over at South by Southwest, we interviewed Land Lakes, And Land Lakes, I just know from butter. Mm-hmm. But they also turned themselves into an agricultural like behemoth of like, oh, we want farmers to do better. We want the world to be fed and something like that. Like they really promoted their brand purpose and stuff like that. But they also acted like a weird tech company kind of sort of. Like, they were very much invested in that type of change of just, like, beyond butter or something else beyond that. So where do you think Kraft Heinz can go from here? I don't know. Um, I think there are some brands that Kraft Heinz can invest in and innovate, but they're, you know, and maybe see success if they do some really creative marketing or product innovation. But there are some that really honestly just feel like relics of another area. You know, I Eras, excuse me. I think of Kool-Aid in particular. It's funny because juicing is then like drinking juices is such a craze right now. And But Kool-Aid is just, despite the fact that it is juice, so to speak, um, and I say this with air quotes, <laughs> which <laughs> the listeners cannot see, but, um, you know, it's all just like sugar, flavored sugar water. 
Um, and that's just not something that people are interested in. And I had actually written another story about Kraft Heinz and a few weeks ago, and I think that some of those brands, they might want to spin off and have to have a smaller playing field, so to speak, so they don't have to keep up with this, like, mass, like, like monster of Kraft Heinz. Yeah. Patrick? Yeah, I mean, well, it's kind of like what about Maxwell House. I mean, that they haven't um, they haven't been active on uh, Instagram, but, like, what would they do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. how how would Maxwell House be relevant to the average Instagram user? It's, it's got to be, you got to get with some influencers, which is its own mess, but it's just... Talk to food photographers, something just to make the coffee yeah. like a honestly, little bit you think appealing. about like how many influencers take photos with their Starbucks cups. Yeah, like that's you know it right there. But it's sort of like, do they care about Maxwell House? Like yeah. I know Maxwell House personally from I have no other coffee left in this apartment. I'm gonna eat this, drink this old thing of Maxwell House. Like I don't go for it. It's usually just like forgotten. Yeah, well, it's probably a combination of like what you described with Land Lakes, but yeah. like getting that message across to people, which is going to be more challenging actually when the brand is well established because people are like, oh, they make butter, yeah. you know, and and then you have they're going to have to push real hard to get the message across that they're that they're more than that. But um, for some of these companies, Kraft Heinz has has no choice, and I agree with Diana that some of them they they should probably just kind of you know figure out how to divest. Well, thank you guys for joining me today. It's been a great talk. You can read that article and a lot more articles on adweek.com. Thank you guys one more time. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. All right, so that was another episode of Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. Um, Our theme music is by Home. This episode was edited by Lane McGivney and produced by Anya Fernando and audio production by Josh Rios. Please take a moment to review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this podcast, and have a great week. David Grant will be back next week. Have a great time. Bye-bye.